Revelation chapter 1. If you're joining us today, maybe for the first time or you hadn't been in a while, a couple of weeks ago we started a, a book study on the book of Revelation. And that's one of the books of the Bible uh, that a lot of people are really interested in. It's also one of the books of the Bible a lot of people are really scared of uh, because there's some things in there that are just like, man, I don't, that, that sounds really bad. I've even known Christians that would not read the book of Revelation because of some of the content that's, that's in the Bible uh, and, and some of the things that God says is going to happen. And, and we've learned the last couple of weeks that God actually gave us this book so that we can know some things. And God gave us this book so that, that we can be blessed. As a matter of fact, Revelation 1 and verse 3 tells us that if we read this book and we keep the, the things that are in this book, God's, God promises a blessing in the book of Revelation uh, to us. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And no other book has such a blessing connected to it like the book of Revelation. And again, as a book that's so culturally kind of skewed in people's opinions and minds, God says there's a very special blessing connected to this book. If you read it and you keep the words that are in this book, man, there's a blessing associated with that. And so we want to do due diligence and study this book the way God intended for us. And, and, and this morning, we're going to be in verses 4 to 7. Actually, this morning, we're, we're only going to cover one verse. And we're going to need every, every second of, of our time to do that. But I want to just call your attention to Revelation 1, verses 4 to 7. And, and the message this morning is entitled, Behold, He Cometh. And actually, we just sang about that this morning. We just, we just sang about Christ coming and ruling and reigning, right? And, and, and forevermore. And, and we sing about that. And, and, and many times, that's the content of some of our praise and worship songs. I want you to understand that's the key point of the book of Revelation. It reveals Christ in all of his glory. And so Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 7, the Bible says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be to you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we covered those, those verses last week, verses four to, six and, four to six, and we talked about how grace and peace are available in the person of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Spirit, God Jesus Christ, grace and peace. This book that has so much judgment and, and war and plagues and vials of God's wrath being poured out. I mean, listen, there's some, there's some scary things that happen in this book. But at the very beginning of this book, there's an offer of grace and peace in the person of the Godhead. And we, we talked about that last night or, or last week. And, and then we said that, you know, God gives us that grace and peace because he, he loved us. He, he loved us so much that he sent Christ to die for our sin. And we can have forgiveness in him. And then the Bible says that if you believe in Christ... He washes us. He makes us clean in his eyes. And then he makes us something that we're not. He makes us kings and priests. And so we covered all of that last week. Now, now tonight, or I don't know why I keep saying tonight. I'm, I'm tired. Maybe I just want to go to bed. Today, it's been a long morning already. 
Today, we're going to cover verse 7, and I want to read it, and then I'm going to pray. Look at verse 7. Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. God, I need you. Lord, we need you. I pray that we, we come today with open hearts. I pray we come today with open Bibles. I pray that we, we are ready to receive what you have for us through the Word of God. Thank you for the time of worship and praise. Thank you for the songs that echo what we're going to talk about today, that, that we're looking forward to your coming, where you're glorified, your kingdom is established, and you get all the glory and dominion that you deserve. Father, I pray this morning as we, as we study, I pray that you give us wisdom through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God and encourage us today, and strengthen us today, and God, even convict us where we need to be convicted today. We thank you for the time. We love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, we're just going to talk about verse 7, and verse 7 is kind of a standalone verse in the sense that John is writing to these seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor. These are seven literal churches, but they also represent seven types of churches. In other words, every church that has ever existed is like one of those seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. And doctrinally, those seven churches represent seven periods of, of church history from the book of Acts through the book of Revelation. But really, verse 7 is kind of the point of really the whole book of, of Revelation. And, and I would even say verse 7 is really the point of the whole Bible. In other words, point number one in your notes, we're going to look at the wonder of Christ's second coming. Because this whole book is about Christ's second coming. This statement, behold, he cometh. Listen, it comes on the heels of this offer of grace and peace. And it's, it, it comes on the heels of this salutation that John gives to these seven churches. In other words, those seven churches in Asia Minor needed to know that Christ is going to come again. And I would say that every church in the 21st century needs to know that Christ is going to come again. And here's why that's important. Here's a key in your notes. Look, the second coming of Christ is the theme of the Bible. It's the theme of the Bible. It's what the whole Bible points to. It's what it's all about. Now, you know, I try not to get, give you the shocker alert too early in the sermon, but I'm going to have to give it to you early right now. Here's the shocker alert. The Bible is not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about this wicked microphone. <laughs> Those seven churches needed to understand that the theme of the Bible and the theme of the scriptures is not about them. The theme of the Bible is not about salvation. Now, aren't you thankful for salvation? I'm thankful for salvation. Salvation is an important part of God's redemptive plan. There's nobody in this room more thankful for my salvation than me. But, but my salvation is not the theme of the Bible, because the theme of the Bible is not about me. The theme of the Bible is not about forgiveness, even though forgiveness is an important part of the Bible. There's, there's themes of forgiveness from Old Testament all the way through to New Testament, but that is not the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is not grace, even though the grace of God is something that we all need every single day. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and yet we don't deserve it, and God gives it anyways. And let me just tell you, the theme of the Bible is not the cross. 
And some people would say, well, man, that's the most important thing in the Bible. And listen, I'm thankful for the cross, and you should be too if you're born again. But the day that the Son of God was brutally mocked and beaten and rejected and humiliated and crucified for my sin and for your sin, well, that's not the greatest thing or theme in the Bible. It was necessary to deal with our sin. Salvation is free to us, but it costs Jesus Christ everything. So the theme of the Bible is not salvation. It's not forgiveness. It's not grace. It's not even the cross. But there's a day on God's calendar that is circled, and it is a day of reckoning. It's a day of writing. It's a day of revelation where God's Son, Jesus Christ, will get all the praise, all the honor, all the glory, all the power that he deserves. It's a day when Christ will sit upon the throne of his kingdom and rule with a rod of iron. That's what the entire Bible points to. That is the theme of the Bible. And if you don't understand the theme of the Bible, the truth is you don't understand the theme of your life. And you'll think, and I'll think, that the Bible is about us, and how can God bless me, and, and God bless my marriage, and God bless my job, and God bless my home and my children, because it's all about me. But it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ's kingdom glory. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. The Bible says, for unto us a child is born. And again, Christmas card verse. Get your Christmas cards ready, by the way. We're getting close. Unto us a child is born. Don't put this picture on your Christmas card. Okay. <laughs> I looked down and I almost, I was like shocked. I was like, why are, why are Colin and Leslie? Oh, there they are. Okay. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that's the, the stuff that we're kind of familiar with. But it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And listen, that, that first part of that verse talks about Christ's first coming. The child being born, the son being given. That's what we've celebrated at Christmas. That's what we look to. But listen, that colon separates about 2,000 years of history. And the rest of what's going to be fulfilled for Christ is that the government is going to be on his shoulder. And, it, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth forever. The, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Even in, the, even in the prophecy that we look at about Christ's first coming, we see the promise of his second coming. We see the promise of his eternal kingdom. The point is, as we read in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, behold, he cometh. He's going to receive his kingdom. Acts chapter 1 and verses 8 through 11, many of you remember this story. After Christ died on the cross for our sin and he was buried and he resurrected the third day, and he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 through 11, he says, he says to the disciples, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, and behold, two men 
stood by them in white apparel, which said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ, who appeared to his disciples for 40 days, teaching them of the kingdom of God, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, next three words are really important, shall so come. He's coming back. And, and when he comes back, he's going to come back in like manner as you've seen him go up into heaven. Well, how did he go up into heaven? He went up in a what? He went up in a cloud. And, and, and listen, those, those angelic beings are telling the disciples, listen, he is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to come as you have seen him go up into heaven. He's going to come with the clouds. And so the wonder of, of Christ's second coming or the second advent of Christ is the fact that, listen, he is coming. And here's the next key in your notes. When he comes, he's going to come with the clouds. He's going to come with the clouds. And, and as we're going to see in just a second, I'm going to give you kind of the, the answer and then we'll prove it. Clouds are the covering of Christ's glory. If you want a really good study in your Bible, study clouds throughout the Bible. Because every single time you find clouds, you find God's glory being wrapped up in those clouds. For instance, Exodus 24 and verse 15, when Moses went up to the mount in the Old Testament, the Bible says there was a cloud that covered the mount. Moses went up to talk with God. And as he's in the top of that mountain, that, that cloud covered the mount. Why? Because it, it manifested the very glory. It was the covering of God's glory in that mountain. Deuteronomy 4, verses 11 and 12, it says, You came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire under the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And again, verse after verse after verse, Psalm 68 and verse 34, it says, Ascribe ye strength unto the Lord. His excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. Psalm 97 and verse 2, clouds and darkness are round about him. I mean, God's teaching us that when he comes, he's coming with the clouds because he's coming in his glory. It's his very clothing, it's his very glory that's revealed in those clouds. Psalm 104 and verse 3, it says, Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters? Who maketh the clouds his chariot? That's very interesting. Who walketh on the wings of the wind. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near to me over and over and over again. It's all about Christ coming in the clouds. Even in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 17, many of you know the story of the, the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Listen, when Jesus walked on this earth in his earthly ministry, his glory was veiled because he walked this earth in human flesh. But there was a point in time in his earthly ministry where he took a few of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain. And in that mountain, the Bible says that he was transfigured before them. In other words, they saw him like they didn't see him before they went up to the mountain. They saw him in a different way. Matthew 17 and verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus 
taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth him up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. Listen, and his face did shine as the sun. I think we just sang that. His face shone as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And Paul, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter answered and said, Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us uh, make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. And while he yet spake, behold, listen, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Even on that Mount of Transfiguration, when Christ was revealed to his disciples in his glory, there was a cloud. That, 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 that Mount of Transfiguration foreshadows Christ's second return. It foreshadows Christ's kingdom glory. Matthew 24 and verse 30, it says, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I'm telling you, man, the second coming of Christ, it's the point of everything. It's the theme of the Bible. It's the theme of your life. It's the purpose of everything. Everything is pointing to that, to that event, to that date on God's calendar, and it is going to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful because Christ will receive the glory and the kingdom that he's due. And then, and then Revelation 1 and verse 7 also tells us that there are going to be some witnesses of Christ's second coming. And again, that verse tells us, and it goes on to say that every eye shall see him. At his second coming, every eye shall see him. Now listen, if, if you've read the Bible at all and you studied the life of Christ at all, can I just tell you that in his first coming, it wasn't that famous or popular. I mean, do you, do you really understand? I mean, listen, there were some people that saw him at his birth, right? We, we know that. There were some people that saw him at his birth. Joseph was there. Mary was there. There were some shepherds that were there. There were some wise men that came a little bit later, about the first two years, and they saw him. But in his first coming, that's about it. Maybe 20 pairs of eyes, 30 pairs. I don't know how many pairs of eyes. But it wasn't every eye that saw him at his first coming. As a matter of fact, it was a very limited number of eyes. And then there were people that actually saw him during his earthly ministry. I mean, Jesus spent three and a half years ministering on this on this earth. And most people would say, well, he's just a good man. He's just a good teacher. He's a miracle worker. He's a good prophet. But even those people that saw him in his earthly ministry, they didn't see him as the son of God. They just saw him as a man. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 13, verses 54 to 55, Jesus says this, when, when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and says, and said, whence hath this man wisdom and these mighty works? Here's what they said about Christ. Is this not the carpenter's son? I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? And, and is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and, and Joses and Simon and Judas? And, and do you understand that during Christ's earthly ministry, people really didn't see God because he was veiled in flesh. Jesus Christ is God. He's God in the flesh. But, but that veil of flesh hid the very glory of God. And, and the only people that could see him for who he was saw him through the eyes of faith. 
They believed the scriptures. They believed the miracles. They believed the teaching and they saw beyond that veil of flesh that he truly was God in the flesh. But not every eye saw him that way. Can I tell you, there were people like we saw a minute ago that, that saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it was Peter, James, and John. And even during his earthly ministry, as he's transfigured, it was a limited audience. Not everyone saw him. There were people that saw Jesus Christ after his bodily resurrection. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we won't take the time to turn there, but, but listen, the Bible talks about that after Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and then He was seen. And He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that He was seen of 500 brethren. But can I just tell you that not every eye saw the resurrected Christ. Only about 513, 512. Paul saw Him. But listen, God tells us at the second coming of Christ, every eye is going to see him. Every eye is going to see him. Now, what that means is every eye is going to see him. You say, how is that possible? I don't know how it's possible. But I can tell you this, every eye is going to see him because God said so. In, in other words, it won't be like his first coming where there was a limited audience or limited people that saw his birth or his ministry or limited people that see him in his glory or even limited people that saw him after his resurrection. When he comes the second time, every eye shall see him in all of his glory. And let me just tell you, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the second coming of Christ. Because in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 15, all of the, the stuff that we're talking about, the second coming, is recorded for us in Revelation 19. The Bible says in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven opened. And by the way, if you want to rightly divide the book of Revelation, there's two times in the book of Revelation where heaven opens. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens, someone goes up. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, heaven opens, someone comes down. And that, that divides the book into three main sections. That's free. We'll get to that later. But I want you to understand what John says in Revelation 19. He says in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as the flame of fire, and on his heads were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood. Oh, by the way, not his blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. When he comes, he's coming in power and glory and dominion and authority. And you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. As a matter of fact, you would do well to acknowledge your sin now and to ask for forgiveness now so that he can wash you and make you kings and priests so that when he comes, you're with him. But can I just tell you? The saints are going to see him. Every eye 
will see him. Some of us will return with him at that revelation. But there'll be people on this earth, man. There'll be people on this earth that have rejected the gospel, that have refused to acknowledge that they need a savior, that have mocked the name of Jesus Christ and blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. And listen, they will also see him in his glory. And what happens to those people is found in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 12. And the Bible says, And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite all the people which have fought against Jerusalem. I want you to listen to this. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. In other words, man's sinful flesh that is corrupted and tainted because of sin, that flesh in which dwelleth no good thing, according to the Bible, that flesh that cannot inherit the kingdom of God, at Christ's second coming, it's going to melt off the bone. And those sinful eyes that have rejected the gospel because they would say that I can't see Christ for myself and I choose not to believe by faith, And those same eyes that are eyes full of worldly lust and adulteries, and those same eyes that mind carnal things instead of heavenly things and spiritual things, well, those eyes are going to melt away in the very sockets of the skulls of those people. And the Bible says that that sinful tongue that blasphemed the name of Christ that refuse to confess their sin and confess Christ as Lord and to ask for forgiveness with that tongue that God gave them and refuse to give God the praise and the honor and the glory that is due, those tongues will consume away in the mouths of those that have rejected him. But every eye is going to see him. The question is, how are you going to see him? Are you going to see him as the conquering king? You're going to see him as one who's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Are you going to see him as the coming judge who executes righteous judgment and rules with a rod of iron on this earth? The Bible says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, it says, The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man, here's what they do when they see Christ coming. They hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? Every eye is going to see. It won't be a hidden thing. It'll be a worldwide event. And you'll either see him as those that have been redeemed in Christ, coming with him as the armies of the Lord, or you'll see him in all his glory without being redeemed. And your flesh will melt away because of the power of his glory and the beauty of his glory. Number three, The Bible goes on to say that there's some people that need to be worried. The people that need to be worried about Christ's second coming. Not only will every eye see him, but God just parks in this verse a little commentary 
they also which pierced him. In other words, God calls out a very specific group of people that are going to see him at his second coming. Those that pierced him. And so here's the key in your notes. Those responsible for looking at the Lord of glory in his earthly ministry, not seeing him through the eyes of faith and piercing him, or they're going to see him face to face again. That makes me think several thoughts because those people are in hell today. Those that rejected him, that crucified him, that refused to acknowledge and to confess their sin and ask for forgiveness. So that tells me that Christ's coming will not be only glorious on the earth because every eye will see him, but to those that are in hell today, they will see him. Look at Matthew 26 and verse 64. I don't know if I have this on the screen. I do. Look what it says. Jesus saith unto him, unto the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas asked him and said, are you the Christ? He said, thou hast said, yeah, you got it. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's talking to the high priest of the Jews. And what he's telling him is, Hey, bro, mark it down. You're going to crucify me now. You yourself, ye, plural, and all of you are going to see me in my glory, and you're going to see me coming in the clouds of heaven. God tells you right there in Matthew chapter 26 that the second coming of Christ is going to transcend both the physical world, the spiritual world, so that every eye can see him, and especially those that pierced him. Mark 14, verses 61 to 62, same, same story. It says, he held his peats, answering nothing. And the high priest asked him and said, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. By the way, people that would say that Jesus never acknowledged that he was God have never read Mark chapter 14. It, it blows my mind. Yeah, I am the Son of the Blessed. I am the Christ. And then he tells Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so it begs the question, who's actually responsible for piercing Jesus Christ? Because these people are going to see him specifically in his glory. Well, as you study the New Testament, we know that, number one, the Romans were partially responsible. I mean, they're the, the governmental system that actually was responsible to use the method of the crucifixion to kill him. Uh, John 19, verses 34 to 37, it says, one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Well, that was a Roman soldier. And he pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water, and he that saw it bear record. That would have been John himself, and his record is true, and he knoweth what he saith is true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture would be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. And so listen, the Roman government for sure was responsible in piercing him. You're telling me that the whole entire Roman government that was alive at Christ's day are going to see him in his glory? Yes. But, but you know, the Romans didn't act alone because the Jews also had a, a hand in that. The nation of Israel was, was responsible. I mean, listen, if you read John chapter 19 and verse 15, I mean, the religious leaders of the Jews, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, shall I crucify your king? 
And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so again, not only was, were, were the Romans responsible, but listen, the Jews were responsible because the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. It actually fulfills what happened in Zechariah, or what was prophesied in Zechariah 12 and verse 10. God promised all the way back in the Old Testament. He said, I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And he's talking about the Jews, the nation of Israel. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. I mean, God prophesied in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, that it would be the nation of Israel that would ultimately crucify and pierce their Messiah. But not only were the Romans guilty and, and, and the Jews guilty, but there was a man named Pilate. And, and, and you, know the, you know the verse in John 19 and verse 10. I'm about to do something really bad to this sound system. John 19 and verse 10. Pilate said to him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? And are you kidding me? Pilate himself says, you know what, man? Yeah, the Jews have a responsibility. The Romans have a responsibility. But man, it's in my hand. I can take your life or I can let you go. So Pilate is responsible. But let me tell you the last group that's responsible. It's every one of us. It's every sinner. Every sinner that's ever walked this planet. Because the Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 5 that, that Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with, with his stripes we are healed. And can I just tell you that every sinner that's unrepentant, listen, you have a hand in crucifying Christ. Every sinner that is holding on to their sin continues to be responsible for crucifying Christ. I was responsible because he died for my sin. And man, I beg God for forgiveness and the shed blood of Jesus. And I hope you have too. Because we're guilty. Every eye that pierced him is going to see him in his glory. Every eye. The Jews, the Romans, Pilate, and us. We're all going to see him. And then number four, the wailing at Christ's second coming. The wailing at Christ's second coming. Because it, says, because it says, after every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him shall see him. It says, all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. And this is, this is a powerful statement, because not only will the second coming of Christ be with a very specific sight. In other words, we'll see Christ in his glory coming with the clouds. We'll see Christ in his glory coming in power and vengeance. But there's also going to be a very specific sound associated with Christ's coming. And it's going to be the sound of not rejoicing, wailing. Wailing. Let me kind of give you an Old Testament foreshadowing of that. In Exodus chapter 11, many of you know the story of Exodus. God's calling a nation of people out of Egypt the nation of Israel, they're in bondage to Egypt, they're under Pharaoh, and God, God gave them instruction, I'm going I'm to come through the land, I'm going to kill all the firstborn. But if you'll take the blood of a lamb and you'll put it on your doorpost and above your door, 
when I see the blood of the lamb, judgment will pass by your house. The Bible tells us in Exodus 4, 11, verses 4 to 6, that Moses said, thus saith the Lord, about midnight, God says, I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. In other words, when God comes to Egypt, to the world, judgment is coming with him. And he said, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was not like it, nor shall, shall there be like it anymore. In other words, this Old Testament story pictures for us that those that were behind the door that was covered in blood had peace and safety and security. They had God's provision and God's protection. But those that rejected God's provision and protection, by the way, that was offered in the blood of the Lamb, they experienced great suffering and they wailed with a great cry because of God's judgment. Amos chapter 5, verses 16 to 17 says, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith, Wailing shall be in the streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing, and in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. I'm telling you, when he comes, and the inhabitants of this earth, are going to cry like they've never cried before. They're going to wail like they've never cried before. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near. It hasteth greatly, even the voice of the, the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly, bitterly. So every tough God that's so tough that he can't confess his sin and acknowledge his need for a Savior, every tough God that says he wants to meet Christ face to face and go toe to toe, every macho man that would never bow a knee humbly to Christ, they're going to cry. They're going to wail and mourn when he comes in the clouds. I don't care how mighty you think you are. There's a mighty God that's mightier than anyone. These idiots hold these signs up that, man, crucify Christ again. You're a fool. Send him again. We'll kill him again. You're a fool. You're going to beg for your life. And then you're going to lose it. Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 9. The Bible says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them, and they shall be as in pain as a woman that travaileth. And they shall be amazed one at another, and their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, both cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to lay desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Mm. Probably a reason why this mic keeps cutting out. <laughs> because everything is pointing to that. Because all of the Bible points to that. Because this whole thing of life 
is about that. It's about Christ receiving the glory that he's due. And so at the end of verse 7, John says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, even so, amen. In other words, John wanted it to happen. There's a, there's a wanting in John's heart to see Christ glorified, to see Christ get his kingdom, to see Christ magnified and have dominion and power and glory. Even so, amen. Man, could you say that today? After everything that we've just studied and talked about and, 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 and the, the power and the glory and the majesty, but also the, the terror of the coming of the Lord. But do you understand that when he comes, he gets the glory and the power and the dominion and he's magnified in his rightful place as the king of kings and Lord of lords? Could you agree with John? Even so, amen. You see, See, I don't necessarily know if that's the heart of every Christian. You see, the reality is the second, of, second coming of Christ, I don't believe, is really loved by every Christian. Now, I know the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ is two different things. I understand that. We'll get to that. We'll get to chapter 4. But can I just tell you that there are Christians today that walk on this planet today that actually don't want Christ to get the glory that he deserves. Because they love themselves more than they love Christ receiving all of his glory. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And listen, I know the rapture happens before the second coming of Christ, but I, but I just would have you to consider for a second that not many Christians really love what we're talking about in verse 7. As a matter of fact, there would be a lot of Christians that would be inconvenienced by the Lord's return. And the reason why is because they love themselves, they love their life, they love their hobby, their job, their money, their, their stuff. Well, they love all that stuff more than they love Christ getting his glory. So I don't, I don't think the second coming of Christ is really loved by every Christian. The question is, is it loved by you? Secondly, I don't think the second coming of Christ is going to be loved by every church. Because listen, when the coming of Christ happens, it's going to disrupt their ministry. It's going to disrupt their name. It's going to disrupt their own glory. And there are a lot of churches that care more about their glory than Christ's glory. Let me just go on record as far as this church is concerned. CFBC doesn't need to make a name for itself. And the minute its name becomes more popular than Christ, we've messed up. So if you leave today, I, I, I'm thankful if you had a nice time here. I, I, I hope you feel like the people are friendly, the coffee's good, the donuts are good. But at the end of the day, if you walked out of here and didn't see that Christ needs to be glorified, you missed it. And we didn't do a good job. 
You see, the second coming of Christ isn't going to be loved by every church. And I know, again, the rapture happens before the second coming. But I think there's a lot of churches that would say, you know what, Lord, if you come, it's really going to inconvenience our ministry. Thirdly, the second coming of Christ won't be loved by the lost. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that in these last days, there are going to be scoffers. There are going to be people that absolutely walk after their own lust. And in verse 4, 2 Peter 3 and verse 4, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And can I just tell you that there are lost people today that are saying, man, you Christians are such idiots because you've been saying that Christ is going to come for 2,000 years. And guess what? There ain't nothing different today than it was 2,000 years ago. You keep saying it, and you keep being wrong. Well, when it happens, it happens. And it's done. You see, lost people aren't looking for the coming of Christ. They don't love the coming of Christ. They're not looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, they scoff and they walk continually after their, fl- their flesh. Here's the key question for us today. Do you and I love and long for Christ appearing? In other words, can we agree with the Apostle John after everything we read in verse 7? He's coming with the clouds. Every eye is going to see him. Those that pierced him and all kindreds of the earth are going to wail when he comes. Can we say with John? Even so, amen. And if we can't, if we can't say that, why not? Let me give you a couple of verses to, to, to encourage you, because the, most of this has not been encouraging. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 says this. When Paul is writing to Timothy, his last epistle to his son in the faith, a pastor, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them also that love is appearing. You see, there's potential for reward, and that ought not to be your motivation. Reward ought not to be your motivation. God's glory ought to be the motivation. But can I just tell you that there are people that long and love the fact that Christ is coming again, and that every day that is postponed means one less day that he doesn't get the glory he deserves. It means one less day that Christ is not seated and ruling and reigning on the throne that he deserves. That Christ does not have an eternal glory that he deserves. Do you realize? Do you realize that every day that goes by is a day that Christ could be reigning and ruling and that all this mess could be fixed? Do you realize that? Titus 2 verses 11 to 13 says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, do you wake up, do you wake up in the morning looking for that? I'll be honest with you. I've told some of you this, and it's not a joke, man. When I wake up in the morning, I'm a little disappointed that the rapture hadn't happened. Because that means I'm still in this flesh. I'm still on this sin-wrecked world. And Christ is not on his throne on this earth. And so most of you know I'm not a morning person. 
spiritually speaking, that has something to do with it. The fact I don't have coffee first thing in the morning is also part of it, but let's keep it spiritual. Every day, every day, every day is the day that it could happen. The rapture of the church, the tribulation, the second coming. And every day that we're fearful of that or we don't agree with God and we don't agree with John, it really reveals that we really don't love his appearing. And again, if not, why not? Because for the Christian, things only get better. Like, I know you think you got it made in this life. You got a good job, you got nice toys, you know, love is blind, you know, God's got somebody for you, you know, whatever. I mean, it all works out, man. We see miracles every, every, every week. <laughs> And as wonderful as those things are, I helped you. I put the bow on it right there, yeah. As wonderful as those things are, anniversaries are, you know, anniversaries are great, children are great, jobs are great, stuff is great. No problem. But man, at the end of the day, Christ getting the glory he deserves. That's what it's all about. You know, Romans 8, and I don't have it in your notes, but just listen. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says in verses 22 and 23 that all of creation groans waiting for the return of Christ. Like this whole earth is travailing in pain, waiting to be set right by the king on the throne. And it even goes on to say in verse 23 that those of us that are really saved, that have the first fruit of the Spirit, we know that this life is not our best life now. If you're really saved, you can't make that statement. Because there's something inside of you that longs for the redemption of this body, the rapture of the church that leads to Christ coming and him being glorified. Man, where are the Christians that groan for Christ's glory in the 21st century? Where, where are the Christians that groan for Christ coming in the 21st century? Would it disrupt your schedule if he came today? Can we agree with John? Lord, even so come. That needs to be our heart. Let's bow our heads.